Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's another 10 Things episode with Lindsay Chervinsky and Clay Jenkinson. And this week's subject is the Bill of Rights. How did it come about? Was it an afterthought? Is it the correct number of rights so important that we must protect the people from the national government of the United States? What do we mean by the Ninth Amendment? And what do we mean by the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution? And how does it affect everyday Americans? And it really does. We take it for granted. This is one of Jefferson's great moments. He said to Madison, what every people on earth has a right to expect against its government is a Bill of Rights. And he persuaded Madison or helped to persuade Madison to become the author of the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights. Please join us for all that and more, the Bill of Rights, on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, the Bill of Rights, this is something that you felt very, very strongly about. I believe you insisted on it, did you not, sir? I did. I was in France when the Constitution was written. I was eager to see what they had produced. I assumed that this assembly of demigods, as I called them, would produce the best constitution in human history, and in many respects they did. When the process was over, three members of the convention sent me the new draft of the constitution, not yet ratified, and all wanted my opinion. I was most candid with my closest friend, James Madison, and I wrote a strong, even stern letter to him saying there are things I really admire about this new constitution and there are things that I don't, among them the perpetual reelectability of our national officers. But the fatal flaw is that it does not contain a charter of the rights of man. I said what every people on earth has a right to expect against its government is a bill of rights. It can never be left to inference. It's not implied in this or any other constitution. It must be spelled out in plain English, and any constitution that does not contain a Bill of Rights is under natural law null and void. Strong stuff, but I believe very um, fervently that without a Bill of Rights, we were headed towards uh, a serious loss of liberty in the future of this country. Sir, if you could add to the Bill of Rights, what would you add? Well, I thought about that. I would have had a balanced budget amendment. I don't think that the country should spend more money than it takes in. If it needs to in time of war or other national emergency, there should be a plan to pay it off within the generation that undertook it. So that's number one. I don't think that perpetual reelectability is a good idea. I wanted one term or two terms only for our national officers, including some sort of term limitation on justices uh, and Supreme Court justices. And then third, I wanted a provision making it possible for conscientious objectors to avoid military service because our Quaker brethren and others are genuine, deeply convicted, philosophical pacifists who abhor war. And I think that it's, it's worth, in this enlightened age, 
granting them that right. You know, we have to be careful to make sure that they really believe it. But I think that conscientious objectors should be protected in our system. It was a very difficult task for those men in Philadelphia to write the Constitution. You would agree with that, I'm certain, sir. Well, I was made to learn this from Mr. Madison when I sent him a letter saying, you know, good start, but why not have a second convention and maybe it'll even be better than the first. And he wrote back very strongly, with his grace as always, but saying, no, we barely were able to get this thing through with a series of difficult compromises and nobody got exactly what they wanted. Everybody came away discontented to a certain degree. He said, I doubt very much that we could gather again and produce anything like what we already have and maybe do worse. So he made it clear to me that that I should not look with any um, complacency on the idea of a second or a third gathering. And so I came to terms with it because I did trust, of course, Mr. Madison. But I do believe two things. First of all, that we need to amend it. We need a Bill of Rights. And, and I'm glad that Mr. Madison took that on in the first Congress of the United States. And I believe we need to uh, tear up the Constitution at once every generation so that we can start over and find new things that we want to protect or new ways to adjust our public happiness. Well, finally, sir, I, I understand Mr. Madison's position. It was a difficult effort. On the other hand, I respect your position, and I can't help but wonder if the country would be better off had we taken your advice and, and rewritten the Constitution every generation. I do think so. If you had a convention once per generation, this would be a wonderful national civics lesson, and it would give people a sense of what's at stake. They would, they would, they would feel an ownership of their own republic, which today you only have by tacit consent, by inherited consent. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Hey, citizens, and welcome to this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, another 10 Things episode with Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky and, of course, the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and I welcome the both of you, and this week's subject is the Bill of Rights, and you've given me a list of questions, points that you want to go over, but before we do that, in the interest of our listeners, maybe new listeners or or listeners who don't know, could you both give me kind of a setup of the Bill of Rights, how it came about? I can start because of my love of Thomas Jefferson. And I'm really interested in asking Lindsay this question today. So welcome, Lindsay Chervinsky, our, our friend and the hero of the 10 Things uh, Initiative at the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Madison is the father of the Constitution, more or less, he sends a copy of the Constitution to Jefferson at the end of the process. So does Dr. Franklin and so does George Washington. So they all respect Jefferson and they all know that he's a serious constitutional thinker. Jefferson's disappointed for several reasons and he gets angry um, as Jefferson almost never does. And he writes a stern letter back to his protege and friend Madison says, what every people on earth have a right to expect against its government is a bill of rights. 
this can never be left to inference. This is a fundamental flaw in the thing that you're doing. You must correct this. So Jefferson played a role, but here's my question, Lindsay. How big a role was that? In other words, if Jefferson had said, yeah, it looks good to me, um, or maybe a Bill of Rights might have been useful, but I see what you've done here. Did Jefferson turn the tide, or was this really beyond Jefferson's rhetoric? Well, first, I think we should say it's really easy to cast stones when you're not actually creating something from scratch. I think that just needs to be universal. Nice to get your cheap shot about Jefferson in there, but now that you have. <laughs> now that I have. I wouldn't want to disappoint you. Um, Now that I have, I think that probably for the American people, Jefferson was not a huge influence because he was abroad. He didn't speak all that publicly about it, largely because of his respect for Madison and many of the other participants. So most people didn't necessarily know his objections or what his concerns were. So I think it probably would have happened in one shape or form or another without him. However, I think that Madison, because Jefferson had voiced those concerns and sort of laid the ground that this was going to be a problem, it made him more receptive to other people's arguments and made him more receptive that this wasn't just Patrick Henry being annoying and wasn't other anti-federalists in Virginia being persnickety, but rather maybe there was a real concern because it had to come from someone that Madison trusted and respected. So that's where I think it made a big difference, not necessarily the United States more broadly, but Jefferson, but for Madison. It sounds to me as if you're saying Jefferson may have helped to persuade Madison to do this. We can't really know, but it couldn't have been um, negligible that the great Jefferson is making this very strong claim, but that if Jefferson and Madison had not had this conversation, probably a Bill of Rights is the is the 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 thing that the people of the United States are going to demand in order to ratify. Yeah, I think so. And I think that Madison maybe wouldn't have shown up so prepared to do it in the spring of 1789 had Jefferson not been one of the early voices calling for this. It may have come about in a more organic fashion rather than him really pushing it. So again, just to to continue that for a moment, Lindsay. So Jefferson is uh, compromised, perhaps now fatally compromised, by his own failure to um, cherish the most important of all human rights, the right to liberty, in the several hundred enslaved people that he owned, and for helping to dispossess Native Americans of their sovereign lands. So this is not Jefferson's best time, now that we're really willing to tell the truth about these things and face them without... um, attempting to protect him, and yet he emerges as this colossal figure as an advocate of human rights, that in some sense the Bill of Rights is one of Jefferson's great achievements. Yeah, I mean, I think the concept that a Bill of Rights is important certainly could be chalked up to Jefferson and his, in a lot of ways, his Declaration of Independence because it lists rights that are important and the key infringements upon those rights that he considers King George III to be guilty of 
sort of sets up the expectation that things will be listed in this fashion, which was decidedly un-British because the British constitution is not written down. It is a summary of, it is a, it is a conglomeration of precedents and various documents and is much more sort of fluid and nebulous. So the concept that you would have these things written was a distinctly anti-British sentiment and one that Jefferson certainly helped pioneer. There have been a lot of times when he has been proven correct that it is really important to have things written down. But because we wrote down certain things and not the others, has that actually in some ways been damaging? Do we sort of overlook freedom as a general concept and focus too much on the specific words in the Bill of Rights? Let's go into the list, if we might. I have it in front of me here. And the first one is afterthought. Now, I'm assuming what you meant by that is that this was not planned. It, it came up after the Constitutional Convention. Is that right? That's correct. So just quickly about that. The, they met between May and September of 1787, and they did place a couple of human rights within the Constitution itself. We'll get back to that. But they were tired, and they had done their job, and they believed that the states were already handling a lot of that in the, in the arena of state sovereignty. Many of the states had bills of rights in uh, right at the front of their constitutions. And so they left without doing that. And as far as we can tell, they did not intend to have a bill of rights, that they thought they had done their job. And so several things happened. And thought leaders like Jefferson responded with great strenuosity and advocacy of a Bill of Rights. And it became clear that the people were anxious about the central strengths and the potential strength of the new constitution. And they began to say, we need better protection for our basic rights. We don't see it here. And so it's an afterthought in the sense that the constitutional convention came and went and there was no Bill of Rights and the Bill of Rights actually came out of the first Congress of the United States. Well, I think it's important also for us from the 21st century, we tend to think of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights as all smushed into one, which is pretty easy to do when it's been 230 years since the passage. So we think of it all as one document, but there are amendments. There are amendments to the document that was very much in effect and they weren't written until Congress was actually Seated, And so that demonstrates that it took additional political discourse to force these things to happen. It also demonstrates from the very beginning how the federal government and the Constitution was an organic evolution. It was not this thing that just emerged from We go on to point number two, and that's that this really was not well discussed or debated. That's the part I'm I'm most fascinated by. I've read several books on this. So Madison, just to explain, at the ratifying conventions and in the anti-federalist press, all these uh, ideas about limiting government power were rolling around and Madison became aware of this. And so he decided to take it upon himself to gather and systematize the these concerns. And so he did. And he pared down, there were several hundred proposed amendments many of which were to limit federal power. But he he looked at all this and he figured out what fits with what and in what order, and he eventually presented more uh, potential amendments to the first Congress than they adopted. Uh, but this was largely Madison's work. It was, in a, in a sense, it was clerical work, but it was also analytical work to try to figure out 
what are the ones that really are going to matter here? Yes, absolutely. If I may actually just take one step backwards, because I want to give Madison credit for doing something that few politicians actually do, which is during the ratification process, and there's a great book called Ratification by Pauline Mayer, and it walks state by state through that process. Madison realized that there were states that were concerned that there were not these, these rights that were clearly articulated. And so he promised and other Federalists promised that once the Constitution was ratified and they had a government, they would go back and create a Bill of Rights. And then they got into office and they did it. And that cannot be overstated because they had already gotten what they wanted and they were already in power and they did it anyway. And so I just need to like <laughs> take a moment to recognize this political honesty and loyalty and fidelity to one's word because it's so important. So then, yes, he comes in, he decides to pull together all these proposals. He submits them, I believe, in May of 1789, if I remember correctly, June, June 13th, 1789. It was published in the Gazette of the United States. And Congress talks about them for a couple of months, but then basically submits it to the state by October. So we're talking about just a few months here while they were also creating the executive departments and finalizing their plans for the federal judiciary. So, you know, some pretty weighty subjects on their mind at the moment. And you're right. I don't think that they really anticipated they would take on the power that they did because it was sort of viewed as a last stopgap measure against federal tyranny. And it was not something that was supposed to well, one can debate this, but it was probably only supposed to be limited to the federal government's actions as opposed to the state's actions, which is where they thought most of the activity was going to take place anyway. And we're going to do a program soon on the 14th Amendment, which, uh, which uh, resolves that issue. But here's the point I think we're making, David, is that if they had known that we were going to spend endless amounts of litigation on what is a cruel and unusual punishment, or what is an establishment of religion, or what is an illegal search and seizure? Had they known that the our jurisprudence and our constitutional interpretation were going to pivot so heavily on this document, they either wouldn't have produced it or they would have debated it line by line and concept by concept, because they I don't think they had any idea how much would hang upon this language. And in a certain sense, and I, I'm, just to say this is to overstate it, but in a certain sense, they were throwing a boilerplate sop to the people. Like, here, here it is. Here's your Bill of Rights. Are you happy now? And they didn't really think of what its implications were going to be in the course of American history. And I would just say, as we go to break, that the Bill of Rights is, in my opinion, a more important document in American history than the Constitution itself. But they didn't know that. They thought, this is the thing we said we would do. Let's just give it to them and they'll have it. And that'll be kind of the end of the story. Very good. We'll be back to this conversation about the Bill of Rights in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, another 10 Things conversation, this time about the Bill of Rights. We have our friend, Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky here with us, and she's always uh, an extraordinary uh, set of insights about these questions. We're talking about the most fundamental of things, which is how humans are protected from government. And remember, Madison in Federalist 51 said, you know, if men were angels, they would need no government. Um, if angels were governing, we'd be just fine. But but humans are, are flawed. And he said, we, the first thing you need to have is a government that can control the people. And the second thing you need to have is somehow to control the government. So he's on to it. He gets this. He gets the importance of government, the possibility of government overreach. And how do you limit government from doing things that it might just decide to do or, or really maybe even need to do on, under certain circumstances. So out comes the Bill of Rights from the same great mind um, of James Madison. And uh, as we went to break, I was saying that they didn't debate it very thoroughly. I'm glad they didn't, because if they had debated it very thoroughly, they probably would have uh, watered down or reduced the impact of some of these rights. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with your statement that in some ways it is more important than the Constitution to our personal day-to-day -day life in the 21st century. And if, you know, we, if we needed any confirmation that government is not run by angels, all we need to do is look outside. Um, but I wonder if that would be so if we didn't take the approach to constitutional interpretation that we take today. I wonder if, and this is obviously hypothetical, we can't really answer, but if we didn't have originalism and if we didn't treat the constitution with such kid gloves such that the bill of rights is really sort of the foundational doctrine of what people are protected from i wonder if that would be so important you were saying if we had a more flexible system like the british in which these things are a very elaborate set of traditions customs negotiations and case law that that are the change subtly over time and didn't put so much enormous emphasis on this text or that text or the original meaning of the Constitution, we might in some sense be less um, hidebound when we're trying to actually ad address the present and the future than we are, that in some sense we've given ourselves a constitutional straitjacket by over-articulating this, which was exactly what Madison said to Jefferson, is by articulating a Bill of Rights, you may place yourself in a difficult position because A, things change, and B, how do you know you have a complete list and people are going to think that's the sum total of all rights because it's in this chartered document. And so we had better be careful not to over-determine our list of human rights so early in our national experiment. Um, well, I, I did have a look of uh, mental anguish. I would have probably gotten there. And the way that I would have gotten there was slightly because was, would have been slightly different. But I, I generally agree with the principle. But I know the next item on our list is the Second Amendment. And the Second Amendment is a very good example. The Second Amendment was not treated as a religious, cultural touchstone the way it is today when it was passed, because most families had a musket. My family actually has a musket that's been passed down that was over my grandfather's mantle and was used all the way back until the 18th century. That was fairly normal. That was not all that shocking. 
But because of our intense focus on the language of the Bill of Rights, it's somehow become this additional thing. And sometimes that's really good when we're talking about privacy or we're talking about freedom of speech or protest or freedom to practice religion. I think these things are all really important. But I also just wonder if it would t- it would have the weight if we were willing to, frankly, amend the Constitution more, if we were willing to be more experimental with our forms of government rather than treating it as though it is sacrosanct. You know, so the 10 Articles of the Bill of Rights are like the 10 Commandments, and they have a similar secular place in American life. This is writ. You must never adjust this very much. And I think that's a mistake. And I think that so many of these bills are historically contingent. I'll give you two. The Third Amendment about um, quartering troops in people's houses. Uh, Big deal then, not so big a deal in 2022. Guns, you know, a musket was a high-tech weapon at this time. 20, 30, 40 seconds to reload. Uh, Surely the difference in technology on on weapons and and the capacity to fire a large number of very lethal pellets in a very short amount of time is a consideration that under the British Constitution would have been relatively easy to address, but on our Constitution, not at all. But I will say this, you know, I know you, I know you're being edgy about textualism and originalism, but if you are a Second Amendment person, or you think the Second Amendment is the fundamental right of the American people, and I know many such people, they thank God that the Founding Fathers writ it in the way that they did, because they want that in plain English so that nobody ever under any circumstances can really begin to take that away. So you see, I would put, I would make that emphasis on the First Amendment. They would make that emphasis on the Second Amendment. Somebody else might make it on the Fifth, but it depends on your view of life, your view of human nature, your view of the evolution of a society, and your view of the specific writs so let me just say one more time, because I'd love to, to do this. Jefferson should be your guy, because he's the one that said we need to tear this thing up and revise it all the time, every 19 years. We don't want to get stuck with some sort of a mosaic, sacrosanct constitution. We want to revisit it so that every generation has to renew its commitment to liberty, and every generation has to decide what are the most important things it wants to protect. Well, much as I hate to cast a shadow on your interpretation of Jefferson's genius, he was not the only one that thought that. And John Adams suspected that the Constitution would not last more than 10 years. So he got he undershot that a little bit. Um, And George Washington thought that it was imperfect, but the best that could be had. So and they both encouraged the concept of amendment. They encouraged the concept of, of evolution. I don't necessarily think that Jefferson's um, uh, methods of, you know, using blood to water the tree of liberty in order to have that sort of evolution is the best choice, but I know that that's wow, your you know, really, quote, you, so I you had may, to get that in there. You're going to leap from constitutional <laughs> change by peaceful process every 19 years to some sort of slaughtering at the tree of liberty. Very all right, nice. all right. I think it's time Very I stepped nice. in here, and let's move on to another one that you have noted on your list, and that is the Tenth Amendment. 
the Can you please Amendment. tell me why? So the 10th Amendment was essential for those who were concerned that the federal government was usurping too much authority from the states. And it says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution. So this means the United States federal government by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And that is very important because we are indeed a federal system, which is why in our current moment, um, states are under this current Supreme Court able to come up with different um, doctrine on abortion, in theory, different doctrine on gun control, um, different certain, in certain areas, different education policy, different environmental policy, in theory, on anything, right? Well, anything not enumerated in the Constitution. There are many, very powers given to the national government in Articles 1 and 2 of the Constitution of the United States. So those are off limits to the states. Uh, and the Constitution also prohibits the states from doing certain things. They're not important any longer, really. But this was the area, this was meant to limit the national government to truly limited national enumerated concerns and the rest then would belong to the states and to other jurisdictions. And so this is what happened to Dobbs in the in the Roe v. Wade overturn. They said the Tenth Amendment says since we can't since we can't be we can't be clear on exactly where abortion is in America, and it's certainly not enumerated in the Constitution. Ergo, let's use the Tenth Amendment and toss this back to the states, and that will put it into the democratic process. And that's the tenth. That's what the Tenth Amendment was intended to do, and so on. But, but, but why did the founding fathers put it in? Was it a, was this a case of them wanting to individual states wanting to protect their rights? And, but it was a blanket item. Why did they put it in? I'd say that the states would have made it number one. It would have been the First Amendment, according to the anti-federalists and the state people that were worried about national government intrusion. So it's like this is a good idea, the United States. But wait a minute, Virginia is always going to be Virginia. Kentucky's always going to be Kentucky, and we have the final say. Not, not, no, not saying they have the final say. I, I think of it more as a cover your apples statement. So it is very much a, the people who wrote the Constitution would have been primarily okay without this statement because their goal was to craft a federal government and to create a strong federal government that was remedying the problems and the weaknesses of the Confederation. However, there were a lot of people who were uncomfortable with that. And so while it is very important to a federal system, I think that Amendment 10 was mostly a political nod to the anti-federalists who were concerned about that federal power to assure them that this was indeed not going too far. And, and how did slavery figure into the creation of this? It figures into everything. But it figures in here, in my opinion, Lindsay, because what the southern states wanted was to make, I mean, when they came to the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the southern states, and particularly South Carolina, said, you touch slavery, we're out. There is no constitution if you try to mess with slavery. You're not overstating that? No, not a bit. And several times they threatened to walk out. And frankly, I think they held the United States and the future of human liberty hostage to their peculiar institution. But they did it, and and they were adamant about it. And, and people like Madison and Governor Morris and many others who were very uncomfortable with slavery were appalled by this. But they there was nothing they could do because they didn't want those states to depart. 
some historians have argued that they wouldn't have actually walked, but the important thing is that people like Madison and Washington felt Morris they would. Believe, yes, believed that these threats were serious enough that they weren't going to risk it. I'm with the the new historians who say the South had nowhere to go, but that's not how Madison and Governor Morris and Washington and Franklin understood it. They understood we're being held hostage by South Carolina and other states, and by the way, Virginia is not so far behind in some of that that they are, they're going to walk unless slavery is protected. And slavery wasn't 100% protected in the Constitution, but it was largely protected. So, of course, that was part of it. So Jefferson and people like him wanted a confederation of states. They liked the old Articles of Confederation. Washington um, and, and Governor Morris and Madison and, and James Wilson wanted a na truly national government. And so this dynamic is really roiling through the entire constitutional convention process. And so this 10th Amendment was thrown to the people as saying, we get it that there's that, that state authority is not extinguished by this instrument. And so it was largely political in nature, and it has been largely ignored. Comes It comes back to haunt us every 30 or 40 years, and then it disappears again. Moving away from the amendments, can we talk a bit about Madison's reluctance and Jefferson's insistence? Well, I've talked about this a little just to say this, that Jefferson, I mean, this was, I've read all of Jefferson, and I can tell you this, this was one of the few times when he really was worked up. Now, there's a little bit of righteousness. You know, Lindsay rightly said he's in Paris listening to organ music and going to theatricals and having a relationship with Mrs. Cosway and, and, and flirting with Jacques-Louis David and so on, that Jefferson is out of the picture and has, has no idea how hard it was to get the Constitution in Philadelphia. And so there's a certain kind of nuisance quality to what Jefferson is doing here. But he meant it. He meant that the rights of man, as he understood them, with the big asterisk, of course, was the whole business of being a, living in a, in a republic, in a free society. And so he really pushed on this. And Madison could hear it. I mean, normally when Jefferson launched some sort of trial balloon idea and Madison said, nah, I don't think so, Jefferson would back down almost immediately. But on this one, he didn't. And Madison heard it and Madison then championed. But Madison was reluctant for reasons that I've said. First of all, he said it's a parchment guarantee. It's just language. No, it's just language. So he's speaking like an English Whig in that way. And secondly, as I said before, he said, if you articulate a Bill of Rights, you're going to be haunted by what you left out. He, I mean, I think there were also a couple of other concerns. One, he was worried about the logistics of the process. Getting people to the Constitutional Convention had been no picnic. Getting them to agree to anything while they were there had been challenging enough. So he certainly didn't want to call another convention to address this because that would threaten to scuttle the whole project. And he was worried about if he introduced these ideas, what that would do to the ratification process. And each state had to do its own ratification thing. Communication was quite delayed. This was not an easy process. And so he had a lot of real sort of practical concerns as well as the more fundamental ones that Clay discussed. And the last thing was, again, from the 21st century, we sort of interpret the Constitution as it has been read today. But in 1787 or 1789, it is a fairly limited document in what it says. It does grant much more extensive authority than the Confederation Congress had had, but it's we've discussed the shortness of and the, the relatively few words. And so what he was saying was like, this is not a particularly beefy structure to begin with. I'm worried if we start putting these things down, it will carve out against 
the very important improvements we have made to federal and executive authority. So those were his concerns, which were, I think, all legitimate, if not necessarily the only concerns to weigh. And he, you know, he, David, he saw several hundred proposed amendments. So I think part of Madison is where does it stop? You know, you start down that path. Now North Carolina wants this thing about shipping, and Georgia wants that thing about forestry, and that this can be this can this is what can ruin that the genius of our constitution is brevity. When you start getting into the weeds in this way, it you may not only have the law of unintended consequences, but then everyone's going to have an amendment. And so what he what what Madison brought to this, which I think is so important, Lindsay, is discipline. He he whipped them into order. He reduced the number to the things that really were going to matter in his mind or the things you couldn't afford not to have, like the 10th Amendment. And that discipline saved us. If he had said, here are, here are 114 amendments, let's just pass them all tomorrow, we'd be a very different country. Clay, there's one other point that you brought up, and I'm going to use your, your, your language on this. You, you wrote that Jefferson wanted the Bill of Rights corkscrewed into the main body of the Constitution. And here he was wrong. He wanted it to go back into the body, maybe the preamble, but right into the heart of it because he said, everyone's going to see this as an afterthought. Everyone's going to see this as a flaw of the founding generation, that they didn't bother to, that that, that, that wasn't their primary uh, interest. I get his point. I think he, he really was angry that they hadn't done it. But I think it's so much stronger as the first 10 amendments, as a bill of rights, as a separate document, don't you, Lindsay? It certainly reads much more, I think, intentional as a, ironically, it reads more intentional as an add-on because it's setting aside these additional things that are so important to humanity and the freedom of individuals. I think from, again, from sort of Madison's logistical perspective, if he had tried to do that, it would have tanked everything. So it was both ideologically and logistically impossible. Remember, David, as we go to our second break, this is the kind of thing that drove Madison nuts. Jefferson actually said to him, well, how about how about a second constitutional convention? Nice start, but why don't you regather a bunch of people and, and, and this time you can fix the things that were imperfect in this one? Uh, I think we should regard this as, as, as part one of a multi-part constitutional convention process. And Madison, who had just lived through this ordeal, must have thought, this guy is a dangerous, whimsical, <laughs> out-of-touch human being. And what Lindsay just said is so important that if you tried to corkscrew these in, now the ratification process becomes a much different thing. Eventually, you got a constitution with an implied promise that there would be a Bill of Rights. That came about really quickly. It all worked out in, in almost miraculous fashion. Well, we do need to take a short break, but when we come back, we have a couple of important amendments to discuss, including the first and ninth. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson, our 10 things about the Bill of Rights with our heroic respondent, Lindsay Chervinsky. Lindsay, I was at the end of the last segment saying that Jefferson was blandly suggesting a second constitutional convention, or maybe nine states should approve it to put it into effect, but four should resist so that a Bill of Rights was certainly added. And I think you said this is pretty odd, maybe even hypocritical coming from Jefferson. Yeah, well, so when Jefferson wrote his Declaration of Independence, he did so, of course, with the assistance of a committee, but he was the primary author. And he pulled in a a lot of ideas that were in the political discourse at the time and, and crafted a document. And then it went to the committee for edits, and then it went to the entire Congress. And they did put it through the ringer. They made quite a few changes, many of which Jefferson was unhappy with. But he was particularly unhappy, I think, with the editorial process of sort of having to sit through his document being raked over the coals. And so it's very funny to me that he then said to Madison, who was, I think, I don't know if Jefferson appreciated this at the moment, but we certainly appreciate Madison as the primary one of the primary authors of the Constitution, you know, I think you should really call another convention to edit your work, um, as though that's such a fun process. Yeah, so I think you said that he would have thrown a conniption fit. (laughs) He would have. He would have lost it. He would have lost it. (laughs) He was very thin-skinned, as are we all, when your book was being edited. Well, so I am I'm thin skinned on certain things, but I've had a couple of very brutal, loving, but very brutal mentors. And so there is almost no editing of my work that hurts my feelings anymore, just because I guarantee no matter what anyone says, I have heard worse, which is a gift. It's actually quite a gift because then I am grateful for the edits and the revisions um, because I know that it will make it better. But Jefferson thought of himself as the man on the mountain. And (laughs) he would rather be gardening. He would rather be puttering around. He would rather be raising tomatoes and rutabagas. But called upon by the people to write this document, he reluctantly leaves his fortress of solitude and comes down into the real world. And he delivers this majestic and beautifully articulated document. And the best thing they could possibly do is just bow and unanimously approve. And when they didn't, I mean, serious, this is how he thought of himself. First, I would say that anyone benefits from an editor. So on on that, he was incorrect, because everyone, no matter how brilliant they are, can benefit from a second pair of eyes. I want to move on because I want to give the both of you enough time to talk about the First and Ninth Amendments. But one last point, and that was something you had written, Clay, with rights that are already in the Constitution. How do they affect the Bill of Rights? So we should just acknowledge this, that the, they they weren't like blind to this. Uh, the Constitution makers had some rights that they wanted to protect. One of them was no ex post facto laws. That is, you can't make something illegal in retrospect, it always has to be in the future. You can't go back and say, oh, that was an illegal thing to do. We're now deciding that was an illegal thing. You can't have titles of nobility in the United States. And habeas corpus, one of the, the central doctrines of British law, that you must produce the person. You can't just lock somebody up and throw away the key, that you must produce them in a court of law to show that they are all right and that they can have representation. They said this shall not be abridged except in times of national emergency, which Abraham Lincoln used uh, in the 1860s. But those are among the the rights that 
that the founding fathers did embed in the Constitution. Which are some pretty important ones and, you know, pretty significant to address the abuses that had previously been inflicted on the British people by the monarchy. And so they had good reason for including those and wanting them to be central to the Constitution. It's a hallmark of the of the jurisprudence of the West that you cannot lock somebody up and not produce them. You have to show that they are okay, that they're being treated with at least minimal respect, that their their needs are being met for food and shelter and so on, that they're not being tortured. And this is the this is what this may be the central right. And every person in the in the West, in, in the first world, counts on this as a fundamental right. And so the that the founding fathers embedded this in the Constitution is greatly to their honor. Let's move on to the First Amendment, one of the most often uh, referred to amendments. Uh, well, I want Lindsay to start on this one. You know, it's, it's a kind of a grab bag. Yes. So, Lindsay, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think this one is my favorite, um, at least of the first 10. Um, it is It is all of the freedoms that require some sort of expression. So it's not just freedom of speech, which is the one that most people know but it's freedom of assembly, it's freedom to petition, it's freedom of religion. And these things make up our, one of the key aspects of our identity as humans is that it's not just that we live, it's that we converse and we gather and we talk about things and we form associations and we want to be able to petition those who we elect to lead us. And so, um, you know, I think we talked about this on part one about the Bill of Rights, that that no rights are absolute. But I think that the First Amendment rights are probably the the closest. They should be, in my opinion, the closest to absolute. There, there are, of course, limitations, but they should be the closest to absolute because they are central to what it means to be a free person. So take the case, for example, of the Pentagon Papers. Um in the 19, late 1960s, um, um, the Defense Department commissions a, a, a vast study of America's um, activities, policies um, uh, in, with respect to Vietnam. Daniel Ellsberg uh, decides that this, is, this shows that the war has been fundamentally flawed from the beginning, that our leaders have lied to us again and again and again and again, that the Gulf of Tonkin incident didn't really occur, at least not in the way that it had been used by the Johnson administration, that all this talk about light at the end of the tunnel and so on was really just bald lies. And so he, he leaks this set of ten, thousands and thousands of pages of this secret Pentagon study to the New York Times. The New York Times publishes it. Uh, the government tries to shut it down. This uh, led indirectly to the Watergate scandal. And the Supreme Court weighed in and said, well, however damaging this is to the United States, however damaging this is to national security, freedom of the press is essential in a free society. So we're going to say, you got to just take this. The, the government has to simply allow this to happen. We cannot enjoin the New York Times or other newspapers from continuing the publication of this thing, even though from a rational point of view of, of, of national security policy, it might be a really um, bad thing to do. And so that's that's one of the great triumphs of the First Amendment, that, that 
the right of a free people to have access to information is superior to national security in most instances. And if that case had been decided otherwise, as I feel certain it would be today, we would be a very different country. And so the First Amendment is not an absolute, but it's a, it's, it's a near absolute. And those sort of key cases where it's been upheld, and by the way, Hamilton played a role in this too in, in his own lifetime, uh, protecting freedom of the press. Jefferson gets a B- minus on this question, although rhetorically he's superb. Uh, this is one of the fundamental um, advantages we have as a people, that when Snowden decides to leak all that information, we may go after him but that information is out there and it's protected by law. I think the context here is also especially important because when they were writing this, the English Civil War was only about a century before, maybe a little more. And they were very well informed. They were students of history. So if we think about us, you know, studying, let's say, prohibition and World War One and that that era, that's essentially what they had studied. And so they understood that in a monarchy, when you have top-down power, freedom of the press isn't always enough to combat authoritarianism. And sometimes that can lead to deadly violence. And indeed, just a couple of years later, that's what they saw with the French Revolution. But in a democracy or a republic or a democratic republic, whatever phrases you particularly would like to use, if it's a if it's a country of rule of laws, not rule of men, then the civilized way to push back on centralized authority, the civilized way to push back on the men in power who are not angels is through the press. And so this is essential to maintaining this type of government system, which is why the press is often referred to as the fourth estate and is viewed as a central part of the system because it's what help keeps the other branches in check. Absolutely. And so we all know that there are certain limitations on that. Uh, freedom to assemble, there are certain limitations on that too. Freedom of religion is um, being contested very heavily at the moment. And what the Founding Fathers exactly had in mind is not altogether clear, but we know this much. They did not want an established Church of the United States, period. And they didn't want any religious organization or entity or sect or persuasion to be uh, to be damaged by government, intruded upon by government, or encouraged by government. They wanted government to stay out of that realm. Those things we know, whether they would have allowed prayer on the 50-yard line at a football game is, I think, a harder question to determine. But, but they, what they wanted to say was, if you are a Baptist, if you are a Methodist, if you are a, a, a Lakota Indian— you have a right to worship the God of your choice without civil penalty and without civil reward. And again, Jefferson is a, is a huge hero in this respect. I know I give Jefferson a hard time on a lot of things. On this- On all things, really. No, not on this. On this, I think that he is the most visionary and has the, long, the best long-term vision and is the closest to what I think we should adopt as our- founding spirit on the freedom of religion. You heard it here first, folks. Let's move on to the final point, and that is the Ninth Amendment. And I know, Lindsay, you wanted to talk about this. so it... I want to I ask Lindsay this question, because I want you to repeat in a, in a different language what you said here at the beginning of this program. Might the Bill of Rights create problems that will damage us 
on important occasions when rights not particularly enumerated are at stake? Yes. So my my fundamental question is we we believe that the Bill of Rights is brilliant, but because of the way our jurisprudence has developed, including interpretations that really take a, in theory, a strict approach to the language. That has meant that we have there are there are rights that are left out. There are rights that are not explicitly enumerated in the the text. So has that actually been damaging over time because so few are written down and we have such a reluctance as a society to continue to add more? I couldn't agree more. So the classic case just happened. Uh, Justice uh, Alito said, I don't see any abortion right in the Constitution of the United States. I've read the enumerated rights. It's just not there. And the, the putative right to privacy does not seem to me to really be fundamentally in this document. Jefferson would say absolute BS that in nature we have a 100% complement of personal rights. We can do whatever we want. When we enter a society, we agree in a social compact to entrust a small number of our personal rights to government, but we don't give them anything more than we have enumerated, that the rest still belongs to us. We have a very substantial right to privacy, almost a universal right to be left alone by government, except in those few areas where we have agreed to let it intrude, say on traffic lights or speed limits or how you get a driver's license. Don't tell me, says Jefferson, that if you don't happen to see it in this Constitution, that it doesn't have validity under natural law. And that's exactly what Madison was saying to Jefferson. Be careful here. You enumerate this thing. Some people, some limited minds, some unimaginative people are going to regard this as the sum total of human rights. And if they don't see it in the list, they're going to say, there, there, there's no right to marry. I see no right to marry in this document. And that's exactly where we are. Well, and I think, you know, one of the challenges is not just that as a society, our values evolve over time as they should, as is important in theory in a civilized nation, but also our understanding of language evolves over time. So they might have articulated privacy and meant one thing, but not necessarily what we mean. So their concepts of bodily autonomy and bodily privacy were actually very different than ours because of the way that they lived in homes. In fact, if you look at, often if you look at letters and they discuss sort of their symptoms in a way that we would find woefully inappropriate. We would be like, wow, this is not something you should be sharing with anyone other than maybe your doctor. But that's that's just how conversation took place at the time. And so this is why it's so challenging to take the language of the 1790s and treat it as though it is, you know, eternal because our understanding of things just so naturally evolves, which is why, you know, like the dictionary has to add new words every year. And so the, the people who are now saying, don't tread on me. You can't make me wear a mask. You can't make me get a vaccine. Are the same people who are saying, oh, no, but government can go ahead and decide what women should do with their reproductive health and so on. It's absolute nonsense and hypocrisy. Let's just say, David, that I, that I lived in the age of Andrew Jackson and I hated him. And in my house, I said, he should die. I'd like to kill him. I'd like to torture him. I can say that in my house because that's privacy. 
that's privacy. But if I say it in the public square, now there's, it's a different situation. And so the founding fathers understood that we have huge privacy rights and that we should cherish those and we should be extremely vigilant in protecting them against any intrusion by government. I want to thank the both of you for a really interesting conversation this week. And we just have about a minute left. So how should the uh, how should the average American look at the Bill of Rights? I want to give Lindsay the last word. I want to say this, that, you know, the American people can't name their nine justices and they some can't name the three branches of government. And we're not very civics minded people. And it, our ignorance of, uh, about the basic business of our republic is pretty deplorable on the whole. But think of the Fifth Amendment. There's hardly an American that doesn't know that you are not required to incriminate yourself when you're in a court of law. They say, I plead the Fifth. And we, and this is exactly why Jefferson said we need it, because people get it. And that without the Fifth, people would incriminate themselves because they wouldn't know whether they, whether they had that right or not. So, Lindsay, you get the last word. I think that most Americans should think of the Bill of Rights in the spirit in which they were intended, which is that freedom whenever possible should be as expansive as possible. And that is sort of the maxim of of these amendments. And so I believe the interpretation should also be for maximum freedom whenever possible. So I will take back that don't tread on me sign and say personal freedom uh, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Rights should expand, not constrict. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thank you.